Let's take our hearts to the Lord. God, you, we want to come before you, God, and just say thank you for your faithfulness. You are faithful. Lord, you alone can save. You alone can redeem. You alone are our king. And teach us what it means, Lord, as was already stated and, and prayed. We come in agreement to, that we would have ears to hear. Lord, teach us what it means to hear you, to respond appropriately to you. We, we look to and trust in you. God, you are the one who edifies us that we might glorify you. So we pray, touch, challenge, change our hearts. Have your way here today. We'll give you praise in Jesus' name. We all say Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Let's take our Bibles, turn in them to the book of Isaiah chapter 44. We're going to finish the 44th chapter today in a message that I have entitled, uh, No Other Rock. And so with that, we want to take and turn our attention directly to the Word of God. You're in chapter 44. Let's look beginning at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Come on, somebody say amen to that. I'm just going to trust that the book of Isaiah has brought both blessing and times of refreshing to your spirit. I tell you what, God's word is always right on time. And it has this way, doesn't it? I mean, proverbially speaking, of sort of lifting us up by our lapels, kind of slapping us around a little bit and snapping us back into reality. It reminds us of where our priorities need to be. It just has this way of grabbing hold of our hearts and saying, hey, 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 what are you doing over there? You need to get back over here where you belong. Don't entertain those things. Don't set your mind on those things. Make sure your motives are where they need to be. And in the book of Hebrews, we read that like this, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we might, must give account. And with that, I'm going to segue right back into our very first verse, which for you and me is the sixth verse of the 44th chapter of the book of Isaiah. There's only one to whom we must give account. Look back at verse 6, thus says the Lord the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. It is the frequent yet friendly, or maybe I should say it is the friendly yet frequent reminder given throughout the book of Isaiah. It's not a real popular preaching point, but it is truth nonetheless, and that is this. There is only one God, and he's the only God with whom this world has to do. Now, he goes by several titles. Uh, don't be confused. There's only one God. 
the Lord, the King of Israel, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. He says, I am the first and I am the last and besides me there is no God. And we've come across this title before, haven't we? This the first and the last. It was back in chapter 41. And it was found within this same context of declaring his glory, proclaiming his authenticity against the false gods, the idolatry that Israel had foolishly fallen, or I maybe should say given themselves over to. And in taking this title, it really points, if you think it through, to the eternal nature of God. He is the first And he is the last. An idol can never be first. It needs someone to form and to fashion it. It can never be last because it'll eventually wear out, break down, and disintegrate with time. But if God is first, well, that means that he's self-existing. There was no one or no thing before him. He does not derive his being or his existence from anyone or from anything. In the beginning, God. And as the last, it means that when heaven and earth pass away, when human history winds down and wraps up, he'll be there, reigning in authority, remaining supreme over it all. He is completely unique, and besides him there is no God. And I think that we would be remiss if we didn't point out once again that Jesus takes this same title on a couple of occasions in the book of Revelation. I'm just going to give you one. It's Revelation 22 and verse 13. Jesus says there, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Notice, the first and the last. And so we're left to affirm once again, if the Lord, that is Yahweh, is the first and the last, according to Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6, And Jesus is the first and the last, according to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 13. And there cannot be two firsts or two lasts. Well, then Jesus must be the Lord God, as well as is the Father, as well as is the Holy Spirit. Listen to me, one God, three persons. There's no gradient from greater to lesser in the Godhead. And because... God isn't bound by the laws of time and space, meaning he lives outside the time-space domain. He can proclaim like none other. And he calls those things, Romans chapter 4 and verse 17, which do not exist as though they did. And he sets in order and appoints those things that are coming and shall come. It is an attribute that is unique unto himself. And it's one of the ways that he verifies or ratifies the truth of who he is to humanity. Why? Think about this. Why does God proclaim the way he does? Why does he speak of the future as though it's the past? Why does he speak of things yet to come and set them in order? I mean, why reveal these things to us and display this attribute unique unto him alone? Is it so that we can be really impressed with him as though he needs our affirmation regarding how great he truly is? No. 
Perhaps it's so that we can gain some insightful information that will really one day service in Bible trivia. No, no. Well, then, then why would God do this? Well, there's a couple of reasons, actually. In the first one, we've already mentioned, it's one of the ways that God verifies to us, He authenticates or substantiates for us that He is the true God and there are none like Him. The idea being, if you serve another God, then let them prove they're a God by speaking of something before it comes to pass or by setting something in order and seeing it through. Let them give proof of their omniscience and their omnipotence in this way. The second reason, he says here, is to alleviate and eliminate our fears, knowing that we can trust his word. You've seen it. I trust maybe perhaps took note of it there in verse 8. He says, do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? God wants you to be assured of the fact that you can take confidence in his word. Listen, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never and by no means pass away. The word of God will always accomplish the purpose for which it is sent forth. The idea here, guys, is take confidence in the word of God. He says, You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? You understand what's happening here. God says, you tell me. Have you run across another God besides me? One who can create everything out of nothing by a word? One who can speak of the future as though it's history and see it come to pass? Who can deliver, redeem, save, and set free? Hey, you tell me. Rick, you met another God like that? No? Ed? Terry? Any of you got that? David, you're up there in Nebraska. You found another God like that? Not one. Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Ladies and gentlemen, that's pretty definitive. I mean, wouldn't you say? Now listen, if God knows everything, but he doesn't know any other God... I'm going to go ahead and place my confidence not in what anyone else tries to persuade me of or thinks they know, be it the polytheism of Hinduism, be it Mormonism, espousing and proclaiming they can become gods or goddesses if they achieve exaltation when they die. Maybe those who believe they're a god, we're a god, everything's a god, god, you know, kind of a thing. On and on the illustrations could go. Listen, I'm going to trust in the one who has proven he's God and what he said, that there is no other rock. I know not one. He is the only one who can save the only redeemer of mankind. Amen? Amen. Okay. And when we hear God refer to himself as the rock... Speaking of the only firm foundation upon which we might build our lives, at least for me, it kind of took my mind back to the words of Jesus when he said, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, guys, that's such a key. How many of us, you know, it's so easy, isn't it, to be a hearer of the word, 
Oh, we sit Sunday after Sunday, maybe even a midweek after midweek or an occasional women's or men's study, and man, we hear the word. And I think sometimes we get confused on the fact that we think that hearing the word's tantamount to doing the word. I mean, we've done our duty. We went to church. We heard the word. Hey, listen, it's not about the one who hears the word. Hearing the word will bring accountability. I promise you that. But the stability, you see, is found in being a doer of the word. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. There it is. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. Anyone know what he's talking about here? There's some storms in life, isn't there? And it did not fall. Why? For it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Same rain. Guys, it rains on the just and the unjust. The same rains, same floods, same winds beat on both homes. One stands, the other collapses. What was the difference? One was a doer of the word, the other was a hearer only. And that house, he says, beat on that house, pardon me, and it fell, and great was its fall. What's the take home? Build your house, your life, upon the rock the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. As we sing in the ancient hymn, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Indeed, there is no other rock I know, not one, not one. Look at verse 9. Those who make an image, all of them, that is the image, all of them, are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Can I answer that? Millions of people would. Oh, they may not form or, or fashion a little statue or a literal pagan deity as did ancient Israel, but I'm telling you, in their hearts, they make all kinds of worthless, useless, unprofitable things their God. And they worship those things. The only difference between what the world does and what ancient Israel was doing is the representative of their gods. Today, someone you know, might worship partying. I mean, you'll, you'll see it on their shirt or on a bumper sticker on their car, you know, born to party. Uh, they have these kinds of little catchphrases, and, and, and the idea is, this is what I live for. Man, I was born to party. Um, okay, well, you haven't created an idol to represent that, but in ancient Israel, they would form that little idol Bacchus, who uh, was the god of wine and festivities and entertainment, which effectively said, I'm born to party. I live to party. That's my god. Or they'd carve a, a likeness to Ashtoreth, which essentially said, you know, I'm into sex, whatever, with whoever. It doesn't matter. This is my god. Or an idol that represented money and power. And they're saying, look, I'm all about wealth. I'm all about riches. I'm all about power. 
You know, we like to think that we're quantum leaps ahead of the ancient world being so much more sophisticated. Truth is, we're not much different. We just have different toys that occupy our time, maybe make our lives a little easier, create creature comforts. But God is pointing out the fallacy, the lunacy of placing our priority on things that do not profit eternally. They serve no eternal purpose, but only serve to lead us in a direction that takes us ultimately away from Him. Look at verse 11. He says, Surely all His companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are mere men. Underline that. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals and fashions it with hammers and works it in the strength of his arms. And even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water. You know, he gets dehydrated. He's faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk and he fashions it with a plane and he marks it out with compass and makes it like the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. And he cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak and he secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He's very careful in his selection of, the, of what's going to become his God. And he plants a pine and, and the rain nourishes it. See, he's continuing to develop this thought for us. He's telling us, think this through, family, to its necessary end. And he, he takes us all the way back to the origin of these so-called gods. And he says, they're mere men. He says, you got this blacksmith, and he heats up this metal in the coals, and he begins to you know, form it and, and fashion it with hammers. He begins to get hungry and tired and weak, and you know, he starts sweating because of the heat. He's dehydrating himself, and the craftsman goes out, the woodworker, and he spends all this energy. He's looking for the perfect tree, the cypress, the cedar, the oak. You see, whatever it is that's kind of drawing his attention, he cuts it down and, and fashions it with a plane, and he makes it in the figure, according to the figure, in the likeness of the figure of a man, uh, to the beauty, according to the beauty of a man. And the idea being that the gods themselves have no life. They're metal. They're, they're wood. The craftsmen, the blacksmith, expend all this time, all this effort, all this energy, all this labor working with the materials. Think about this. How ironic is this? That the true God has made. I mean, who created the tree that you're using there? And after all the work he puts into it, he finally winds up with a beautiful little nothing. It has eyes, can't see, has mouth, has ears, can't speak, can't hear. And, and you're going to fall down before this thing that you've made with your own hands and ask it to save you, to defend you, to provide for and to protect you you. He says, you know, you're, you're, guys, the, the question in view is a very simple one. How can a mere man who gets tired and weak and thirsty, all these things, make a God? 
How can a mere man make a God? You've got it all wrong. You don't make God. God has made you. You see, look at verse 15. He says, Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it. Remember, he's talking about the the cypress, the cedar, the oak that he's cut down and fashioned and, and planed and all the things. He will make some of it and warm. He will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread, and indeed he makes a god and worships it, and he makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire, and with this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied, he even warms himself and says, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it. He worships it. He prays to it. He says, deliver me for you are my God. You see, God is trying to help them realize how maddening, how, how counterintuitive this truly is. You'll cut down this tree. You'll use part of it to bake bread and warm yourself and make a meal, cook a good solid dinner. The other part you'll make into a god. And you'll... Worship before it. You'll pray to it. You'll ask it to deliver you. The same substance that you threw away, you will bow before and pray. The truth is you get more out of the scraps than you do the substance. I mean, at least the scraps warm you. Cook your food and all. The idol itself does absolutely nothing. And guys, you know, I trust that you're able to take the principle and, and make the application. We've talked about this before. We may not have the little statues, but the things that, that we worship in our culture, what do they do for you? I mean, listen, when tragedy strikes, you can ask your car to deliver you. It can't. You can ask your money to save you. It won't. Why do we give ourselves over to things that don't help us or, or give us peace or joy? Again, that serve to really ultimately take us away from God. The, the deliverance, the salvation we need, our other priorities are unable to provide. And guys, this is why, I'll make a little application for you here. This is why... Sharing our testimony. You do realize if you've given your life to Christ, you have a testimony. You, you realize that, look, I was blind, now I see. And the guy that opened my eyes, his name's Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a Bible scholar, though I encourage you to study, your, you know, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, one that rightly divides the word of truth and all of that. But you don't need to know chapter and verse to share the reality of what Christ has done in your life. And it's so powerful because Jesus has actually helped you. He has saved you. He has delivered you. He's done something for you. The things that the world is trying or, or pursuing to find peace in aren't working out. They aren't doing anything for them, you see. And that's because idols can't deliver you, can't save you. You know what they can do? Demoralize, dehumanize, and deceive you. Let's look at it together. Verse 18. 
He says, they do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so, they can, so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Or shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wheat? He's like, it's a stick. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a log. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver his soul nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand. Wait, did this just say what I think it said? Did you see it there in verse 18? Did you kind of raise an eyebrow and be like, wait, what? They do not know nor understand, for he, that is God, has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. How is it that these idol makers, these idol worshipers, fail to see what is so obvious about the inconsistency, the stupidity, the, the, the lunacy of idolatry? Well, it's because God has shut their eyes so they can't see it, and their hearts so they can't understand it. We read it and go, wow. I mean, isn't that unjust of God? I mean, isn't he condemning them for something that he's ultimately responsible for? No, not at all. And it's a principle that we see in play, ladies and gentlemen, all throughout the Word of God. And that is this, God will give a person over to the desires of their own heart. Um, listen, if you love darkness rather than light, then God will honor that. But don't blame God when he gives you over to what you really wanted in the first place. One of the more famous examples perhaps it's popping up in your mind even as we speak about it, is when God, quote-unquote, hardened the heart of Pharaoh when he was telling him that he was to let his people go. And the word hardened in the Exodus account would probably be better understood as honored. Uh, God wasn't really... Uh, or, or maybe even stiffened his position. God wasn't working against the Pharaoh's will. It wasn't like the Pharaoh was sitting there and thinking, gee, I really want to let the Israelites go. You know, I really want to bless them. I really want to release them. I really want to just fill their, their you know, backpacks with treasures for their years of faithful service. And, and God was saying, nope, nope, not going to let you do that. I'm going to harden your heart against them. And No, God was giving Pharaoh over to the inclinations of his own heart. He was giving him over to his sin. He was solidifying him in his already personally persuaded position. Does this make sense to you? And this is why it's so dangerous to harden your heart against the Lord. 
I'm going to give you a word of encouragement too. If you open your heart to the Lord, you want to serve the Lord, you want to honor the Lord, you want to find, be found well-pleasing to the Lord, guess what? God will honor that too. He will strengthen you in that. and He will solidify you in that. An- another famous New Testament passage is found, let's look at it together. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans uh, chapter 1, okay? We're going to spend a little time, guys, looking at a couple of these things because it's an important point. Romans chapter 1, okay? And we're going to go ahead and and draw our attention down to the 18th verse, and we'll just read through the end of the chapter, okay? Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood through the things which are made. You know what that means? Every design demands a designer. We've talked about this, so I'm not going to uh, reiterate it. But design demands designer. And so when you look at the world and the design, the creativity, the complexity, the variety, it screams design, God, which testifies of a designer. Are you with me? So it's clearly seen, all right, by what is made even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Notice their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up, notice, to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. We all say, Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up. Wait, what? Did you see that? For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, meaning procreation, this is how life happens. Likewise, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over, there it is again, to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm. Look around at the world today. Consider the country and the culture you live in. It seems like insanity. Otherwise seemingly intelligent people parading around flagrantly, proudly, in twisted, perverted, unnatural ways. Men 
dressing up, pretending to be women in some of the highest offices of the land, occupying positions in the White House, Ivy League universities. We're seeing violence, wickedness, maliciousness, deceit, evil-mindedness in staggering displays, inventors of evil things, undiscerning, unloving, placing light for darkness, darkness for light, calling good evil and evil good. How can this be? God gives people up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts. And professing to be wise, they become fools. And since they don't want to retain God in their knowledge, God gives them over to a, the words are, debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. If you don't want the truth, you'll be given over to the lie. But listen to me, lies lead to blindness. Lies lead to blindness. And it's going to happen in a way unparalleled in human history when the Antichrist is revealed after the rapture of the church. Let's just keep turning to the right, shall we? Let's look at one more passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just make your way over. It's just about, oh, I don't know, maybe a less than an eighth of an inch to the right in your Bible. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, okay? And when you get there, we're going to look beginning at verse 7, and we're going to read through... Verse 12, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let me take your attention to the 7th verse. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so. This is the, the, the person, the power, the ministry of the Holy Spirit until he is taken out of the way when the church is removed. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. If you don't want to believe the truth, and I'm going back to the book of Isaiah just so you know. If you don't want to believe the truth, God will help you believe the lie. Listen, when it comes to the truth, some people just don't want to hear it. I mean, they just don't want to hear it. So God will give them over to the lie. Think this through. What alternative is there? If you don't want to believe the truth, what alternative is there outside of a lie? What's the take home here? Receive the love of the truth. We don't form and fashion God. God forms and fashions us. Some people like to mold God after their own likeness. What do you mean? Well, they don't like the idea of God allowing people to go to hell, so their God doesn't do that. Are you shaping God or is God shaping you? Some people, you know, uh, they don't believe that God would allow sickness or suffering. 
So there, God doesn't do that. Well, are you shaping God or is he shaping you? You know, how about instead with regard to, well, you know, I don't believe they got, listen, how about rather than just refusing to believe that God would allow someone's choices to take them to their desired destination, ultimately, which the Bible refers to as hell, if they don't want to be with him, he'll honor that. How about we receive the love of the truth and allow it to fuel our urgency in getting the gospel out to people that they might be saved? Guys, we don't have the liberty to pick and choose the things we're going to believe and not believe about God. That's called crafting your own God. Real quick, on the other hand, look again at at verse 18. We read that God will shut their eyes so they can't see in their hearts, so they can't understand. Over in verse 20, we, you know, having chosen to reject the Lord, a deceived heart turns him aside. He lacks the discernment to say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He doesn't, it's like he's not even, you know, when I read this, it took my mind to Luke chapter 24, and it's the passage just prior to our Lord's ascension, and there he is your Lord and mine, and he's expounding and explaining to his disciples how that all that happened to him uh, had to be fulfilled. It was written in the law and the prophets concerning him, that is the Messiah. And in verse 45, we read this, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. I love that. Man, I pray for that. Here's my question. Do you want to be in the camp of which the Lord shuts their hearts so that they cannot understand? Or do you want to be in the number of which the Lord opens our understanding that we might comprehend his word? Don't turn aside to lies. Man, follow Jesus Christ. Verse 21, guys, we're, we're kind of rounding the Circle in the runway here. We're not too far from finished, okay? Look at verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out, underline this, like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel." Redemption provides a reason to give God praise. Sing, for the Lord has done it. Shout, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He's glorified himself in Israel. God says, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you couple things to see here before we wrap up and wind down. Number one, I want you to notice the past tense of uh, the words here. Uh, he says, I have, God says, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions. I have redeemed you. He doesn't say, I will blot out. He says, I have blotted out. It's past tense. The work is done. Guys, when Jesus uttered those words, 
Three famous words from the cross. It is finished. What he meant was that the work of atonement was complete. Man, it's done. All manner of sin was forgiven man. God has settled the sin dilemma. But there's a caveat. There's a catch, if you will. In order to receive said atonement, in order to have the blotting out of your sins recognized by God, and this is the second thing, you must, well, the word is, return to God. Or to understand that another way, redemption requires repentance. Okay? Uh, Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, repentance toward God, that is a returning to God, and faith toward Jesus Christ. He's done the work, return to Him. He's paid the price, He wants you back. You don't have to somehow earn it, Merit it in some manner, jump through this hoop, dot this I, cross this T, cut this red tape, whatever the case may be. You can humbly receive it, rejoice in it, give God praise for it. In verse 24, we're going to read our final section here. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and He who formed you from the womb. And we talked about this extensively last week. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone. I, mean, I just, I, I love God. I mean, I just love the way he just brings himself forward. Who spreads abroad the earth by myself and who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built. And I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. This we'll maybe talk a little bit about next week. And uh, who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to her temple, your foundation shall be laid. Guys, I want you to just take note of all the remarkable claims that God makes in this little final section of Scripture. He says, I am your creator, I am your redeemer. And not only has he created all things generally, he forms and fashions each individual personally in the womb. He claims absolute sovereignty in that he frustrates the signs of the babblers. He drives diviners mad. He's wiser than any human could hope to be, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. We spoke last week about the foolishness of evolution and how you really got to reach out there and check out you know, of, of all of your ability to reason and rationalize normally to even kind of latch onto that theory. Yet he confirms the words of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. He establishes cities who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. Guys, I don't want you to forget the overarching context of what we're reading here. God has been telling them that they're going to be taken into captivity a little over a hundred years from this point by the Babylonians. Babylonians aren't even the superpower yet. The Assyrians are. But here he begins to reach even beyond the Babylonians. And he says, you're going to be taken into captivity, but I'm going to bring you back. Okay? Uh, and he even names the king 
Cyrus, Cyrus was a Persian, not a Babylonian. And he names him by name approximately two centuries before he's even born. Who would release, and Cyrus is the one who would release them when he overthrew the Babylonians. And we'll see that a little bit next time. But they would be in captivity for 70 years. Jeremiah told them that's how long it was going to take. And we'll, maybe we'll talk about some of that as well. I don't know. you got to have some incentive to read your own Bible. I just bait, the, I just bait you. I just whet your appetite. And you go, back, well, what was he talking about? Well, go look it up. You don't got to wait on me. But then they would be rounded up like lost sheep, released and returned to rebuild and re-inhabit Jerusalem. God tells them all of this, like two centuries before it takes place. And this circles us all the way back to what we mentioned in brief last week regarding God's what? Do you remember the word? He, he chooses on the basis of his foreknowledge. God has foreknowledge. He knows the end from the beginning. Guys, if you can get past Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can get past that, everything else is easy. God has proven His authenticity, His reliability, His validity through His Word. Build your life on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Let's bow our hearts. Father, I just want to ask that you would forgive us when we falter. It's so easy for us, even as we began in our time, thinking of how easy we can wander and, and kind of drift from side to side. And in your word, you just have this capacity, this ability. You call us back so faithfully. And you have shown yourself true and trustworthy and faithful. And yet we still just kind of go our own way. I pray, God, open our understanding that we might comprehend your word and teach us to build our lives upon you, the sure foundation of your word. And we thank you, God. Oh, God, our hearts well up with gratitude and thanksgiving that you have blotted out our transgressions. You have blotted out our sins. And so may we be a people of repentance, of praise, of righteousness, Lord, for the glory of your name. And guys, just real quick, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I'm just going to encourage you. God has paid the purchase price of redemption through the shedding of the blood of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And I would be remiss to not give you the opportunity to respond to that. The righteousness of Christ is only accredited to your account through repentance toward God and faith toward Christ. And so I'm just going to encourage you in the stillness of this moment to open your heart, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. And if that's you, I want to pray for you. If the Lord has uh, been knocking on the door of your heart, even in this moment, as it were, hear His voice. Open your heart. Believe on Him and be saved. If, if that's resonating in you, can I pray for you? Just show me who you are. Just show me your hand. If I see your hand, I'll say so, and you can put it back down. But I just want to give you a chance here to respond to the message of the gospel. 
that God has loved you and given himself for you in the person of Jesus Christ. Is there anyone that needs that hope today? Okay, well, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness again. We pray, Lord, that you would just cause your word to take deep root, bringing forth fruit in our lives. Again, for the glory of your name, we'll give you praise. And everyone say, amen. Amen.